a listener production. Howdy, you are listening to episode 124 of the Howie Games Part B featuring cricket guru Greg Chappell. Let's get stuck into the second innings. We have got, uh, I don't know, we've been going for it. We've got so deliciously sidetracked, which I love about podcasts, about hats and tomahawks and backyard cricket. So I, 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 I don't often think it serves a great deal of purpose on this chat, Greg, because it's so much more interesting to hear about things like that, to go slavishly through your test career and innings after innings. But I, I would like to talk about your test debut. 11th of December 1970 versus England, the first test match played at the Wacker I've written down here. Um they made a pretty big score, 397. You came in at five for 107. So you must have been batting at were you batting at seven? seven. Batting at seven. What are your memories of your of your first Test match? Um, sketchy these days, um, but yeah, you know, I mean, I remember it well up to a point. Um, you know, I'd grown up dreaming about playing Test cricket, so uh, this was a, a dream come true. I was probably lucky. I'd been twelfth man in the first Test in Brisbane. Uh, so it gave me a you know a chance just to sort of get get used to the atmosphere around a test match and just the the rhythm of a test match how it all sort of went. Actually, there's a good story around that test match and finding out I, I was twelfth man. Bill Laurie was our captain, and so Terry Jenner and I you know we knew it was between us as to who was going to be twelfth man. Um, you know Brisbane in those days was a you know pretty greenish sort of wicket. Um, wasn't guaranteed that they'd want a leg spinner. So it was 50-50 in, in my mind that uh, I, could, I could play. And, and in those days, the practice wickets were on the Gabba. So we'd had a training session the day before the test match in the morning, after which we were having lunch at the Queensland Cricketers Club, which was on site at the Gabba. And, um, you know, the, the sort of downstairs veranda area was set up for us to have a team lunch. So I, I, I would say I didn't have a lot of breakfast in those days. I wasn't big on breakfast. Uh, I couldn't eat until a bit later. So I reckon I was pretty hungry by the time I got to this table that had been set up for our lunch. Yeah. So as I sat down, one of the waiters put a basket of bread rolls on the table right in front of me just as Terry Jenner sat down opposite me. And I thought, I need something to eat. So, you know, while I'm waiting, I stuck my left hand in the basket to get myself a bread roll at the same time that Terry tried to stab one with a fork. And he took a bit of a gash out of the back of my hand. And I said something along the lines, gee, Terry, be careful, I've got to play cricket tomorrow. At at that moment, Bill Laurie sat down alongside me and just out of the side of his mouth, he said, I wouldn't worry about it if I were you. (laughs) So... It didn't come as any great surprise at 20 to 11 the next morning when Bill tapped me on the shoulder and said, Greg, you're 12th man. So I had the chance to sort of, you know, get used to test cricket. So then we go to Perth and the Wacker was a great batting wicket, you know, great cricket wicket. It was, if you were a fast bowler, it was great to bowl on. First, you were, was it the first test match there? First ever okay. test Sorry. In, in Perth. Um, and you'll be pleased to know Channel 7 covered it, uh, right. Howie. So... Uh, um, local identity um, who was very uh, responsible for getting the test match there, owned Channel 7 and a radio station and so Channel 7 covered right. the game. Um, so I was picked as the all-rounder. Terry Jenner was 12th man for the Perth test. We hadn't done particularly well from a batting point of view in, in Brisbane. So I think the selectors decided they needed to bolster the 
um, you know, bolster the batting and I could bowl a few overs of seamers if, uh, if, if required. So I batted at seven. Um, England, I reckon England had got early 300s. Yeah, I read, yep, got it, yep, yep. Yeah, early 300s batting first and so we were... 397, 397. Um, 390, well, there you go, they, so they did better than I thought. Um, so they got 397 and we are five for 107. And I was lucky because I didn't, I didn't like to put the pads on until the guy before me went out to bat. I didn't want to sit there with the pads on for too long. Um, Paul Sheehan was the batsman before me and Timbers went out there and he ran himself out pretty quickly. I reckon I might have only had one pad on when um, huh. he was on the way back in. So I hadn't had a lot of time to get really nervous. But I can remember walking up to bat sort of feeling in a bit of a fog. You know, I was sort of, I was aware of what was going on, but it was all a bit sort of much. Imagine what must be going through his mind. The player making his first appearance in a test match and, of course, against England. Ian Redpath was the not-out batsman. Red is uh, one of the great fellas, great uh, teammates, wonderful cricketer. You know, Red is, you could guarantee, Redders would get runs when everyone else struggled. Funnily enough, you know, he didn't seem to make the most of it when, when pitches were, were better. Um, but you could guarantee that if we were struggling, Redders would be one of the blokes that would be getting runs. And he was getting runs this day. So I know, I actually know him quite well because his yeah. grandson, Elliot, plays oh. cricket. Yep. With the big penguin in the under 10s oh, here in Barnsley. So he's well, a fine, fine man. And the skinniest bloke I reckon I've ever met, Greg. <laughs> he, he hasn't put an ounce on since <laughs> I first first met him. He is one of the, the he's one of the great fellas. He didn't drink, he didn't smoke, but if we won a test match, he'd have a cigarette and a beer. Right. It was just his way of celebrating. Yeah, we all loved to win, but Redders love to win more than more than anyone else, and we all, you know, we're all proud of representing our, our country. But I reckon, you know, we would have all died for the green cap, but Redders and Rod Marsh would have killed for it. Okay. And I, I reckon they were two yeah. the most passionate guys that I that I played with. Great but anyway, so Red's Red's not out, um, and Redders was an ungainly looking batsman at times. He wasn't much of a hooker and a bit of a cutter, but not a hooker. John Snow was the best of the England bowlers at the time and Snow was giving him a workout. And Redders was ducking and weaving and, you know, as he came back to the upright position, Snowy would be four or five paces away from him and Redders would just mouth two words at Snowy every time he bowled a bouncer and he swayed and came back to the upright position. Just... The second word was off. I could never quite pick the first, <laughs> the first one up. But yeah, my, my lip Golly. reading wasn't wasn't right. so good. But I, I, I took forty eight minutes to get off the mark. It didn't seem that long to me, but apparently my family and friends tell me it was a very long time. Oh, it would have been for them. But I didn't. When I look back on it, I didn't face a lot of the bowling in that first forty, and I certainly didn't face much of Snowy. So Redders either took it on himself and he's never answered the question. So next time you see him, you ask him. I will. I'm going to ask him. Did he just do it to protect me or was he just stuck down there and he couldn't get away? Right. Uh, he's, never, he's never answered the question directly. It's always just a wry smile with Redders, which you, you would recognise yes. better than most. But Red's up there and he's battling his backside off and I sort of slowly came out of the fog after about 45 minutes, I reckon and realised that there was a bit of a contest on here and maybe I could help out. So it took me a long time to get to 50 and then the, la- the second 50 came in sort of run a ball 
after that, um, although I did get a top edge off Lever, Peter Lever, I think, um, when I was about 96, went for the hook shot, Snowy was at fine leg, and I do remember as I as the ball hit the bat thinking, uh-oh. Um, luckily, I didn't get enough of the bat on it and it landed about 10 yards short of Snowy sort of steaming in off the off the boundary, and that was about the only mistake I... I, I made. So, um, so when, when you brought up the ton, I, w- I was looking at it and the commentator, because there's punters have come from everywhere and the commentary, I'll quote it to you, Greg, somewhere in the middle of that milling throng is Greg Chapel. Like it was, it was, these kids came from everywhere. Well, they weren't only kids, they were adults, you know. They were, right. Every man and his dog came out on the ground on so, those so days. Was it madness out there? <laughs> oh, no, it was crazy. Shuttleworth bowling to Chapel. And he get it there. He'll get two runs. This is his hundred. He's coming back for two, and the boys are coming from everywhere. Greg Chappell scores a hundred in his first test match, the first innings of his first test. And look at these kids. There's thousands of them. There's literally thousands of them tearing out onto the ground. The umpires have had to come in to protect the bales. And somewhere in the middle of that milling throng is Greg Chappell. I sort of I retreated to sort of short third man because okay. I wanted to drag him away from the pitch. I didn't want him running all over the the pitch <laughs> and you know <laughs> knocking off the stumps and all that sort of stuff. I do remember a policeman sort of getting to me at some point. A, a big strong Western Australian policeman sort of finished up at my shoulder and he was sort of fending fending <laughs> people off. But it took twenty minutes, I reckon, to um, you know get the crowd off the ground and. Settle, settle everyone down. Is it everything it's cracked up to be making a hundred? Well, for you on debut for your country after you've you've seen your brother do it, you, you know your your grandfather's done it. You've grown up in the backyard. Was everything it cracked up to be, or you couldn't take in the enormity of it at that stage? I think it's probably a bit of that. Um, it was more of a relief than anything else. I think right. in, you know in the end, and, and as I've said to many young cricketers since, you know, your first Test match is the easiest one you'll ever play. You know, the first test and he's because you are the new kid on the block. You travel under the radar a bit because they're more worried about the more experienced and, and better known players. And I know, you know, the, the England players would have thought, you know, um, uh, uh, Illingworth, the captain of the England side, and John Snow, I reckon, knew that if they get Redders out, it's all over. So they focused their energy on him and I was left at the other end, which... Again, was a bit of a bonus. So, so your you non your non hugging brother when you come into the sheds after a hundred on debut is it is he effusive with his praise or is it just a well done young felt like how what, how yeah, does that I, go I, from brother to brother? I think he was channeling our grandfather. Well done. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it. Okay. No, no, but that was your job, you know. Like, yeah. Like you asked the question of you know what was it like? It, it was a relief. Um, and I think, you know, I, I found that with, with all of my test centuries, it was more of an anticlimax. It was more of a relief than, than a celebration. You know, it was obviously something you were, you know, you were pleased with and proud of, but you were doing your job. And I'm sure Redders was, that was his sole focus as well. I mean, we didn't talk about it. We didn't have any, comp- I mean, you know, Redders, there's mm. not a lot of conversation to be had with Redders, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just, he's just, he's just, a, he's a bit like the, um, the Buddha, you know, I mean, he just, yeah. the, the, the knowledge just flows out of him, but he doesn't, uh, he doesn't tell you it, it just comes out of his being. But Greg, I got him 
after probably two years ago, he'd taken his young bloke, Elliot, to the cattery to watch their yeah. beloved cats. And, and your uh, beloved cats? Yeah, no, I'm a Hawks yeah. man. I'm How a Hawks man. So he was dropping Elliot off at our place because his parents were here and we were having a okay. bit of fire pit outside. And he yeah. said, i got to go. And I said, oh, j- just sit down. Do you want a beer? And he said, no, no, I-, I don't drink. That's fine. So I got him a cup of tea. And a bit like I was asking you about your grandfather, I just did a mini Howie Games with him, just for mine. I just peppered him with questions and he started opening up, telling me about touring the West Indies and it mm. was it was a fantastic 45 minutes for me no. because he started telling me stories about playing cricket in your ear and I loved yeah. every minute of it. I know. He's, uh, he, he probably didn't tell you about collecting all the old bottles in the West Indies in between cricket matches because he had his antique shop in, uh, in in Geelong at the time. Did he? So we'd come back to the hotel and there'd be red with all these old bottles from the, you know, from the pirate days. But he's, a, he's the most fascinating fellow you'll ever, you'll ever meet. Hey, there's a footnote to this, and again, this may be true or it might not be. I, I did a lot of reading about your innings, and it said nationally went to the news when you were on 99. That, 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 that was ABC Radio. Right. So ABC yeah. went to the news when you were on 99, and it was said that began the kernel of the idea in Kerry Packer's head that he needed to do something to revolutionise the game. I, I don't know if there's any truth to that. But that's how it's been written. Yeah, I, I don't know whether that's that's true or not, but I, I do know that um, Talbot Duck Manton was the chairman of the ABC at the time and an edict went down from his office the next day that in future, if that situation arises, the news will wait until the, the, the person has scored their 100 before you go to the news. So right. it, it changed, uh, changed the way that the national broadcaster did its... Uh, Cricket yeah. broadcast, anyway, at at the time. But again, I had a lot of family who were in in the eastern states, and you know they were spewing because all of a yeah. sudden it's it's gone. <laughs> I, I think I was ninety eight or right. And, and when it, the news was finished, you'd already brought the ton. Yeah, you? yeah. There were there, there were people that I've spoken to who, who were at weddings and you know had their earpiece in, and they were all yeah <laughs> listening to the cricket. <laughs> And there were people screaming out in the middle of the, the wedding ceremony because the ABC had gone away from the cricket. So, Okay, you now get the question from my 11-year-old daughter, Sky, Greg, who operates as the pickle. I was showing the pickle highlights this morning before she trotted off to school in Geelong, and of all the things she could ask you, this is what she came up with. Hi, Mr Chapel Pickle here. Dad was showing me some videos of you playing cricket. Now, I like the uniform in the 80s with the green and gold. But when Mr. Packer made you wear the full yellow with flares, I wasn't so sure about that. What did you think of that uniform? Well, Pickle, I think the um, the flares were in fashion in those days. The, right, she's we, an outrageous yeah. bit of kit you were wearing, Greg. Yeah, you, you should have seen the jeans um, <laughs> if, if, you, if, you, if you weren't happy with the uh, with the yellow kit with the flares. You should have seen the jeans. No, it wasn't a good look. But um, yeah, it was. There's a. A lot of things you look back on, you know, the, the fashions of the of the time, you think, what the hell were you thinking? And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people looking back in 20 years' time wondering what yeah. they were doing with their haircuts and their, their tattoos. <laughs> Michael Holding, who's, I'm lucky enough to have him on the show, and he, he called it coral rather than pink. And, and he said he made an effort to make sure he was never photographed in it so it couldn't come back to haunt him because he knew how bad it was at the time. Yeah, look, I think... 
there were a few people that uh, tried to steer clear of the, the cameras, but not everyone was successful. I, I, we, we could go and talk about the Packer era and everything that went on and, and it would take us it would take us forever. Um, did, probably the best way to give me a defining moment, whether it was on pitch, in a boardroom, at a ground of, of your memory of that time, which has revolutionised the game and made the life of a cricketer now so much better because of the financial backing they have? Look, there are many, many stories, but the one defining one, I think, was on the the night of our first day-night game in Sydney at the Sydney Cricket Ground. The first year of World Series cricket, we weren't allowed to play on traditional grounds, so we played at Sydney Showgrounds, Waverley Park, uh, Footy Park in Adelaide, Gloucester Park, Trotting Track in, in Perth. Kerry did a deal with the New South Wales government. I think basically he paid for the lights at the Sydney Cricket Ground. Wow. To, to get us back on to a traditional ground. And so we had a – and, I mean, Kerry was was a visionary. I mean, he was way ahead of everyone else in, in so many areas around sport and television. But under lights, you know, coloured clothing, and I don't know how well you know the Sydney Cricket Ground, but the Burwongle Stand, yes. which is on the western side of the, the ground, um, was being rebuilt, you know, was being – it had been knocked down. The old Brewongle stand was knocked down and, and almost what you see there today was, was being built. So there was a third of the the capacity of the ground was reduced and I, I think the capacity of the ground at the time was probably 50-odd. So it's down to probably 30-odd thousand at the SCG at, at that time. And I can remember standing at the top of the members' stand as the lights came on in, in the evening yeah. In the in the dinner break with Kerry Packer and Rod Marsh, and we are looking out over the Sydney Cricket Ground, looking south down towards Randwick Racecourse. So over uh, over on the right was where the Barongal stand had gone missing. So there was a gap, and you could see out into Driver Avenue and across Moore Park. And right. there were people running from the bus stop to get at in Moore Park to get there for, to be there for the first day night game. So this was partway through the game. We've had one innings. So during the dinner break, there were thousands of people running across Moore Park to get there. And it's Len Pascoe to bowl the first ball to Barry Richards. And the first ball under lights in the history of Australian cricket. And there's that overall view. What a magnificent view of this historic occasion. And there it is, it's all over. The Australians have won by five wickets. And here comes the stampede. And the Sydney Cricket Ground, you know, the gatekeepers decided to, they had to close the gates because the ground was full. And Kerry went down there and he bullied them all to open the gates. Personally, just, he went down there? He went down there personally to, to let them in. But I can remember standing there looking at this vision of the Sydney Cricket Ground under lights was magnificent. And seeing all these people coming from the dark into the, the light spilling out around the ground and Rod Marsh, I can just remember Rod saying, we're back. <laughs> and, you know, this, this, this was the turning point of, you know, World Series cricket from that point. It went from sort of being a, you know, a bit of a, not a white elephant, but, right. you know, wonder whether it was going to succeed and you just knew that <laughs> night this was huge success. It, it, because we've been running through, you know, cricket bats and hats and in a way I've been indulging my youth talking to you, which I really appreciate. I have two early memories of watching cricket, Greg. One was um, 
AB and mm-hmm. Tomo um, at the MCG trying to put on the 70-odd the and AB as a result became my hero. And but, but, but I think I reckon my first cricket memory is we'd moved from Western Australia to Sydney and we hadn't been able to move into our house yet. So we had four days in a hotel, which was tremendously exciting. So it was, you'll have to tell me the date. I reckon it was 81, 82, but it was when you were in the midst of making a lot of ducks. I think it was seven, mm-hmm. seven in a year. You need to tell me four in a row. And he's gone. Big Chapel is out without scoring. It's in the air and he's gone. Out. Caught at mid-wicket. Well, that's a tremendous blow there. In Australia, Chapel out straight away for naught. Caught at mid-wicket. Well, two ducks for Greg Chappell, the one in Melbourne last innings, and this one holding out to mid-wicket. And, and this is why, again, it's such a thrill for me to chat with you because maybe the fourth one in a row against the West Indies, um, I reckon you might have got out to Michael Holding. The wicketkeeper was probably, I don't know, Derek Murray or someone. But I can remember sitting on the bed of the hotel, and I can even remember the bedspread and my father consoling me because you'd made another duck and I, you probably felt the same as I did, but as a whatever I was as a kid, I was in tears and I was inconsolable about the fact that this fellow I looked up with had made another duck. And he's gone, first ball. That's his fourth consecutive duck. Greg Chappell, Port Murray, bowl holding a duck. I don't know if I've got the dates or the times right, but it's funny what sticks in your mind so clearly as a kid, certain things, and that sticks in my mind, Greg. I'm glad you brought it up because I've forgotten all about it. Um... <laughs> no, it's, it's wrong of me. We should talk about the fact you averaged 53.86, the most stylish batsman we've ever seen, etc. But the point of it being that the great thing that I've learnt in this podcast and the message we try and pass on is for all the success, everyone that gets anywhere in life has failure along the way and it's those mm-hmm. that can deal with the failure and I'm sure you'll reinforce this to me that then go on to greater success. So the obvious question is you've brought a, a six-year-old, whatever I was, to tears. What was it like for you? Because the game, you'd had the game at your beck and call in a way and now the game was having its way with you. What, what was that like for you, Greg? I was inconsolable and I had no one to console me. So you were <laughs> you were luckier than me. You were on the end of the bed at the hotel. Yeah. I was, I was all on my own. Um, no, look, it was it was a very humbling experience, and as you said, you know, you, anyone who's had success in anything has had a lot of failure along the way. And one thing that I've said to a lot of young cricketers over the the years is that you know, you get used to failure uh, and find a way to deal with it because you're going to have a lot of it. First ball. First ball, a good leg cutter, and a great catch by David Murray. And what a disaster for Australia. Croft is on a hat-trick. Well, when you're hot, you're hot, and when you're not, you're not. That's what Greg Chappell must be thinking after this delivery. You know, when you realise that Don Bradman batted 82 times in Test cricket and he only made 2,900s. Yeah. So yeah. he had 53 failures, if you look at it in, in that sense. Yeah, and the rest of us are only half as good as that. So there's a lot of failure to deal with. And, and if you can't find a way to deal with failure, you won't go on and have any success because you'll get caught up in, in that failure. And one of the 
the interesting things was, I mean, our era was was a was an interesting era because we were part time cricketers. It was a pastime. You know, we had a real job and we went and played cricket. And I worked in the insurance industry for a big part of my um, cricketing career, insurance huh. and, and finance. So, you know, I, I was working as an insurance salesman because I, I had two years of county cricket. The first year I absolutely loved it. You know, I know fancy as a 19-year-old, someone paid for me to fly to England and paid me to play cricket. Um, it was uh, was quite a remarkable experience. But midway through the second season, I realised just how much hard work it was and I didn't enjoy the environment of playing cricket day after day. Hmm. So I rang my father and said, look, end of this season, I'm coming home and I won't be coming back to play county cricket. It's not the way I want to play my cricket. I want a real job and I want to go and if I'm going to play cricket, I want to try and play at the highest level. So find me a job where I can earn enough money in six months to be able to afford to play cricket for the other six months. So I got into life insurance. And one of my early experiences, I was I was put in, it was in Adelaide at the time, I was put into a sales unit just out at um, Green Hill Road in Adelaide, which is just off away from the CBD slightly, um, with a bunch of other young blokes, but there was one sort of senior salesman and he was the most successful of the salesmen in our sales force. And he just sat at his desk all day and was on the phone. You know, we found any excuse not to get on the phone. And at lunchtime, we'd be down the pub for a, for a pub lunch and a game of snooker. You know, I mean, you'd, snooker. you'd find any excuse not to, not to be on the phone. And I must have been, I must have been going off to play a few days, you know, shield game or something, because I remember coming back from the pub going to my desk and packing things up because I was obviously going away for a couple of days. And this chap, and I, and I don't remember his name, sadly, because he inadvertently taught me one of the best lessons of my, my life. He, he sort of came over to me as I was packing my desk up and he said, Greg, how are you going? And I said, yeah, I'm going fine. He said, no, no, really, how are you going? And I realised that he was talking about business and, you know, and I probably lied to him and said, yeah, yeah, I've got a couple of, you know, contracts on the go and, you know, things are okay. And he said, you don't like the phone very much, do you? And I said, no, I don't like people saying no to me. And he said, Greg, they don't say, they're not saying no to you, they're saying no to life insurance. He said, you've got to understand that every phone call is worth $50 to me. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, for every 10 phone calls I make, I make three appointments. Every three appointments, I make one sale. Huh. The average sale is 500 bucks, so each call is worth 50 bucks to me. He said, you've got to learn to love the phone. And he said, the way I deal with it, when someone says no to me, when I put the phone down, yes, I'm that much closer to my next sale. What a way but, of looking at life. And brilliant, you know, theory and, and attitude, and I sort of worked out. It helped me in the long run with in my insurance life, but it helped me in the short run with my cricket because I worked out that I sort of made 100 every five innings. So every failure I had, it was, you beauty, I'm one closer to my next 100. And that was the way of being able to deal with the failure and go away and come back with confidence the next time. Because if you go away and, and you dwell on the failure, what is likely to happen is that you then start fiddling with what you've got. Mm. You know, this is wrong, that's wrong, I'll try this, I'll try that, and in the end you don't know where you are. I never deviated with my method. 
You know, I worked on my mental game very strongly, but the physical game, I never, ever, apart from the Bradman change of the top grip, yep. I never changed anything I did ever. But I changed the way I thought about it and, and, and all of those things and I reflected on it. Big Chapel isn't off the mark yet. Chapel out LBW for a duck. Well, would you believe it? He's just talking about how he's going to try and get off the mark by playing every ball on its merits. He did that. This was a magnificent delivery, nipping back from outside off stump. Greg Chappell hadn't played forward far enough. A big appeal, magnificent bowling from Andy Roberts and umpire Johnson's finger in the air. Greg Chappell being accompanied off the ground by Daddles the Duck. But for me, and it was testing the theory a little bit with the seven ducks in, you know, it was only a few weeks, but it felt like three years, you know. But... And I did get myself caught up in the, the anxiety and then started worrying about getting out, which I'd never done. You know, all I did was think about scoring runs rather than worrying about getting out. And it was only when Rudy Webster, who had was a West Indian doctor who oh, lived yeah, in Melbourne yeah, yeah. and worked in, you know, with Carlton and Essen and maybe in, as a sports psychologist. And the Tigers, yeah. He, he came, the Tigers, yeah. He came to me and... Um, after it might have even been that day that you were inconsolable. Uh, I wish he could have come to me. <laughs> he he walked into the the dressing room, into the the bowels of the MCG because the viewing area used to be up on the ground level and the dressing room was down below. And I was the only one in the dressing room, and I'm sitting on the chair, sort of wondering what happened, you know. And Rudy walked in, and uh, you know it was hard for me to be excited about Rudy's arrival, uh, although I knew him well and and liked him. He came up and he said, bad luck, Greg. He said, but if I can say one thing, are you watching the ball? And hmm. I responded, as you would expect, hmm. with words along the lines of, gee, Rudy, what do you think I'm watching? <laughs> That's what you got for me, Rudy. Watch the ball. <laughs> Watch the ball. And he said, no, 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 no. I don't, you know, like you normally do, I don't think you're watching the ball as fiercely as you, you normally do. And it was only when I got back to the... The Hilton up the, on the, on the park, um, just above the MCG there that night, and sat in my room, and I realised that because I'd walked off the ground that day and probably a couple of other times, and I thought, you know, well, I didn't see the ball, and I, I remember walking off the ground, looking back at the sight screen, trying to work out what was the, what was wrong with the sight screen because I hadn't seen the ball. Hmm. But Rudy was right, you know, I I'd got so caught up with what was happening at my end, I wasn't actually watching the ball. Garner to Chapel. And he's bowled him. Greg Chappell gone cheaply once more. And yet another duck against his name. And we went to Adelaide for the next test match and I got 60-odd in the next test match and I was often, often running. So it, it needed a good fatherly figure like Rudy just to tap me on the shoulder and say, mate, you know, chin up and uh, start watching the ball. It might help. More of Greg in a tick of all the cricketers we have featured on this show. One story stands above and beyond all others for mine. It was told by Justin Langer in episode 53 about an eating contest he had with Mike Gatting. Here's part of that story. So we get to tea and then we get upstairs in the change room and we're having the Branston pickle and cheese sandwiches. Another couple of mugs of tea. We're having a donut. We're having the fruit cake. <laughs> <laughs> You've got me snorting. It is literally, I'm not joking. 
I can't not believe it. I'm like crying. You know when you start seeing those comedy, but they start eating so they start crying. <laughs> I felt like I was going to burst right. And then we get we finish the <laughs> the last session. Mate, gets better. Brian Lara, 274. <laughs> <laughs> you mean chasing leather? Brian Lara, I'm trying to chase leather. Brian Lara, 274. And then we're going to go out for dinner that night. Then we went to the Italian restaurant <laughs> in St John's Wood High Road, right? And we have a bottle and I'm the young green Aussie. And he goes, I'll oh, have some red. We'll have a bottle of, and I, well, I thought it was Rioja, but it's actually called Rioca, but I'm calling it Rioja, right? <laughs> so they think, to this day, every time I see them, they go, oh, you want a bottle of a glass of Rioja, do you? I go, oh, yeah, no. They think I'm a dopey Aussie. And then we're having the, oh, mate, we're having the the white bait and the squid, the calamari. <laughs> then we're having the lasagna. We're having the, oh, mate. <laughs> And then we have the tiramisu. It's not just... <laughs> <laughs> the full story, and it is a cracking story, it goes beyond the tiramisu, is on episode 53 of the show. Let's get back to Greg. Well, let's continue on this theme of, of my childhood. 1984, your last test match. I, I don't know whether it was a weekend and I was at his house or he, Matty Zywitz, who I haven't thought of for 30-odd years, he was one of my schoolmates and I'd walk home to my joint past his. So whether it was a weekend and I was at Maddie's, Maddie's Iwitz, or whether we were walking home, but you came out and, again, I can remember the tension in me because you needed 66, 68, something to pass Bradman as the most runs in Australian Test cricket. Um, you, you can explain it to me better than I'm explaining it. And you went on and made 100, so you made 100 in your first innings, 100 in your last innings. But the tension I had, Greg, when the graphics were coming up, he needs this many runs to pass Sir Donald Bradman. That's another very clear memory for me. What What is that for you when well, you were going out to bat for the last time and it was all coming to an end, I guess? Yeah, again, it was a bit of relief, I think. Yep. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I remember when Ian retired first before World Series cricket. He came back and played in, in World Series cricket and one more season after that. But he was 29, I think, when he retired. And I said to him, mate, you mate, you, you mate, you're mad. You, you've got a lot of cricket left in you. And he said, no, mate. He said, you'll know. When the day comes, you won't need anyone to tell you. Huh. You'll know. <clears throat> and I did. I was at the Adelaide Oval during that series against Pakistan, the last series, and Kim Hughes was captain. I wasn't captain at that stage. Um, and I was batting at number six and I ran myself out in the first innings of that game. I hit the ball to mid-off and ran. I hit it straight to mid-off and ran. I was running out by 10 yards. I mean, it was just the worst non-run of all of all time. And, and uh, you know, I, I knew that I was cooked. You know, and it, it, it takes a lot of effort, you know, a lot of mental effort to, you know, to be ready at that, uh, that level. Yes. And what I found with the, the run of ducks was that I was off. For that couple of weeks, there was there were things going on off the field. For the first time in my career, I had allowed what was happening off the field affect me on the field. I got distracted. I wasn't as focused as I, I normally was, and I failed. And then, you know, I, I made a comeback and played for a few more years and 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 made quite a few more runs. But that last series, I knew I was struggling, and you cannot. Be ninety eight percent. You won't make a lot of runs at that level if you're not a hundred percent. And for me, the the real key was the Rudy Webster, you know, message was watch the ball. I had to make sure I saw the ball leave the bowler's hand. That was my 
field of focus as the ball left the bowler's hand. And and apart from that runabout, I never deviated from that. But I was struggling in that last series and I knew my time was up. And I sort of, I, I didn't want to admit it to myself initially, so I played that Adelaide Test match and then the, the Melbourne Test match after that. And I was I struggled through that. So I knew that my time was up. And I didn't want to play at anything less than 100%. It just, it wasn't going to be successful. It wasn't going to be fun. It wasn't going to be worthwhile. And I mean, I had a young family. I had a, you know, my wife had been very generous to let me go on playing for many years. I had businesses, I had partners who had been very, you know, generous to allow me to go and follow my cricket career. So... I had plenty to look forward to. It wasn't like it, well, I was stepping off the end of the cliff and I didn't know what was on the other side. I was just going back to work. So um, I got to Sydney and I decided that I wasn't going to leave it to the last day to tell anyone. I needed, for my own sake, as much as anything else, to tell the chairman of selectors on the first morning, this is my last test match, because I needed to put a fine line on it so I could try and get my mind together for one last effort. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to sort of finish on a, on a good note. The, the run record of Bradman wasn't that big a thing. I mean, it, you know, it was there and I'm this close that it'd be nice to, to go past it. And that'll teach you for giving me a better grip, you silly man. <laughs> I must admit that did cross my mind. I felt like I got, a, I got a lovely telegram from him. I felt like answering and saying, well, you yeah, see, you should have left me with the top-hand grip. Anyway, so um, I, I wasn't that fussed about it, to be honest, um, but it was there and it was sort of like, well, I'm this close. It's like the top of Everest is just here. I might as well make an effort. So I thought, and I went to Kim and I said, look, Kim, I'm really struggling batting at six. Do you mind if I come up the order in, in this final test match just to finish off? And he was very generous. Mate, you do whatever you want to do. And um, and it was uh, Pakistan batted first and I think they, you know, they got a 200-odd, round high 200s. Sydney in those days, you know, batting last in Sydney, chasing anything more than 200 was a real challenge. So having bowled them out at a you know at a reasonable reasonably low score, I knew that if we got enough, we'd probably only have to bat once in the game. Right. So all I've got one more innings. Try and you know gear yourself up to 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 get there. And I was I was really primed for it. I, I was for the first time that summer. I was a bit anxious and you know keyed up. And that's a good way to be. But an incredible scene. Greg Chappell cheered all the way up to the middle. Everyone off the backside, standing up, cheering him up to the middle. And this is last test match. Yeah, I was never overly nervous, but I was always keyed up. And when you weren't keyed up, you knew you were in trouble. And that's the way I'd been for most of the summer. I wasn't, you know, I was just turning up and going through the motions and you can't do that. So I was all keyed up and I remember going out to bat just before lunch. So it's, you know, um, 12 o'clock, whatever time of the day it was, around, you know, 12.15. I reckon I had about 40 minutes to bat before lunch and Abdul Qadir was on and Sydney was a good wicket to, to bowl leg spin on. Had a bit of bounce but it spun. And he was a good bowler, and when he was up, he you know he was a he was Shane Warne. 
you could sort of get on top of him. You know, you, Warney wasn't the sort of bloke you could dominate, but Abdul, you could sort of wear him down a little bit if you got a bit aggressive with him. Chapel facing Abdul Kadir. Spin that's in the air, but safe. And will beat Kazim away to the boundary. Greg Chapel's first boundary, and Australia moved to two for 75. But at that moment, he was on top of the world. He knew that I was struggling. He knew that, you know, he only got 40 minutes to bat before lunch. You can't make many runs, but you can get out. And I can remember just treading on them, falling on them, <laughs> do anything I could to get through to lunch. You know, I just, <laughs> I thought, well, Imran's going to make a bowling change, maybe, and with a bit of luck, Abdul will go off after lunch, but at least for a, for a spell, and it'll give me a chance to, to get in. And so after lunch, I sort of slowly got into into rhythm, and we got I think it was about sixty five or six. Yeah, that's what to, it was in my head to get for, to get past the Bradman nine hundred nine thousand nine hundred ninety six. Now it's his job to make these next four runs for Greg Chapel as difficult as possible to get. And um, I was batting with Kim, and I pushed the ball in to the offside and Moen Khan was fielding at point. Safrez to Chapel again. Quick single. And there were, you know, I was always comfortable there was a single in it, but Moen reckoned there was a chance of a run out. I also reckon, I've never talked to him about it, but I reckon Moen also knew there was a chance here for him to be a bit part player in this this whole thing because he's shied at the stumps at the bowler's end and missed. Miles away. I never even got close. And I reckon I was pretty, I would have made it anyway. But then we ran three overthrows and that was the, that, that was the, I got, got past the uh, the Bradman mark. In comes Mosin, he'll shy at the stumps, Chapel's home and they're overthrows. This could be it. Chapel turning for the second. He'll be back for the third. Hughes is flying. He'll come back for the fourth, and this run makes Greg Chappell the most prolific scorer of runs in the history of cricket in Australia. 18,000 people rise to their feet and cheer one of the greatest batsmen of all time. So that was sort of a relief, but again, that wasn't the total focus. What my focus was, if we get enough in this innings, we won't have to bat again, and I don't particularly want to bat again because this is you know, the last gasp. I've used every coupon that I've got in this innings. Azim Hafiz now, four for 272. Greg Chappell on 99. Just one away from something quite unique. Shot, beautiful stroke. What a marvellous way to bring up 100 with the classic cover drive we've seen so often over the years from this great player. His wife, Judy, is so pleased. She knows this is his last international game of cricket for Australia. A century to Greg Chappell. It's a magic moment for us all, and particularly for Greg Chappell. So to get past 100, then I got to 182 and missed a straight one. Madassa Nazar to Greg Chappell. That's close. Yes, indeed. Kept a bit low, played across it, and I think it would have hit uh, about middle and leg. And the whole crowd rises now to Greg Chapel. 182 in his last 
test match innings. We uh, we managed to win the, win the game, and I went out on a on a winning note. But and Dennis Lilly came to me the de- the first morning. I've announced to Phil Ridings, the chairman of selectors, that I was retiring at the end of this test match. And so the new I went to train. I went out to the nets after that. I didn't tell anyone else. I just told him. And by the time I got back to the dressing room, the news was out. And Dennis Lilly came up to me. He said, "You bastard!" He said, "I'm going. I'm retiring as well." <laughs> I was going to tell him tomorrow. I said, well, bad luck. You came second, mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've taken up far too much of your time. I've just got a few more questions for you. And this next question, I guess, Greg, you could take three hours to answer and I don't want to put you through that. But your quest for self-improvement, whether as a cricketer or as a person or as a father or as a husband or as a mate, what does that mean to you and why? Like it's a tremendous thing to always want to be better. How's that manifested itself in you? Because when I teach to anyone, any yeah. of your mates, anyone you played cricket with, and I've spoke to quite a few people, they've all said uh, he's an incredible bloke because it doesn't matter what he's doing, he always wants to improve. Not in a not in a grinding it out way, you just want to get better at things, which is is quite inspiring I reckon. Yeah, I, I, I'm not quite sure where it where it came from, but I mean, obviously, the cricket career was a big part of it. I mean, that's my biggest education has come from my cricket, um, and and cricket's a very demanding game, particularly as a batsman. I think as a bowler, you get a bit of a second chance, but you don't often get a second chance as a as a batsman, and it, and it is quite it forces you to be very introspective because if you're not reflecting on what's happening. You're not learning very much, so I think I've I've been very introspective, and I think you know I've been very fortunate with my my partnership with Judy, and you know she's a she's been very helpful in in these ways, and she's a very spiritual person as well, um, spiritual soul, and you know I think that has influenced me a, a great deal, but I I just don't know why you would get up in the morning if you weren't trying to get better, um, and I think the thing that I've learned over the years, yeah, I mean I. No, yeah, as as a teenager and as a young person, I know there were times when I was trying to impress people or, you know, be something that I that I wasn't. But I think what I've learned through the years is you got to be true to yourself. Um, you might tell fibs and you know lie to other people, but if you start telling lies to yourself, you got a real problem. Mm-hmm. So, and I think it, gradually that sort of comes on to the outside as well. And and I, I just try and be, um, you know. The, the same, no matter what's happening ar- around me, not to not to sort of change too much, and and I don't care whether it's the, you know, I mean, I, I can I can go back to the days when we had lift operators, you know, back in the old AMP oh. building, we had lift operators, you know, you get in the lift and, you know, the, you treat the lift operator the same way as you treat treat the chief executive, you know. And I think that was something that it wasn't drummed into us as kids, but it was an example that we were set by our, our parents. And, you know, I think in recent years, all through my, my adult life, I've been involved in charities. But, you know, four years ago, we set up the Chapel Foundation and we support yes. youth homelessness. And, you know, this has been the most, you know, one of the most fulfilling periods of my of my life. And I think it was something that, you know, we learned as as kids was that we were very lucky. 
you know, our parents weren't wealthy. We didn't grow up in a, you know, wealthy household. We never wanted for much. But our parents, you know, they sacrificed a lot for our cricket careers, our sporting careers. But there was always a feeling that, you know, we were pretty lucky and not everyone was as lucky. And I've certainly learnt through my experiences of travelling the world and so on and, you know, mm. living in other countries and you realise that, you know, we are the lucky country and, you know, we, we've had a lot going for us. And But there are people and, you know, there's 110,000 Australians who haven't got a place to call home. That's unacceptable in, in a country like ours, in a wealthy country like ours. There shouldn't be one person let alone 110,000, and 40-odd percent of those are under 25. And it's a growing demographic and females growing even more so. You know, so there's always been that feeling that, you know, if you can, if there's something you can do to help someone else, then you should be doing it. Mm. So it came to me then that that's what the Chapel Foundation needs to be about. It's supporting young people, homeless youth or kids at risk. And uh, that's where we're supporting seven charities uh, who do really good work in, in this area. We're not, we weren't trying to reinvent the wheel and become a charity that was doing the frontline stuff because there are plenty of them doing really good work. So what we do is we raise money uh, and awareness around this problem and it's a huge problem. And we channel the funds to these seven charities who provide services to kids uh, and some adults that uh, who are homeless or at at risk, and you know, I thought when we started, if we could put one kid's life back together again, that'd be worth that'd be well worth it. I would. Thankfully, we're helping hundreds of kids every every day, and and I've met a lot of these kids, and man, some of them start from a long way back, and we were blessed. Ian and Trevor and I were absolutely blessed that we the advantages that we've had. And if we can just help some of those kids put their lives back together again, because no one chooses to be homeless. It happens to you. And, and we're all one step away from being in that boat. And I would like to think that there'll be someone there to give me a helping hand if uh, if it happened. And that's what we're trying to do. So you know, that's that's been my sort of ethic all along is that every day is to try and improve myself in, in some way or, or another and uh, help as many people as I can. It's admirable that you can improve yourself and help others. Okay, this um, this one has popped into my head in this discussion about self-improvement. You may not have a suggestion, so if you don't, I'll just cut it out. It's no problem. You watch a lot of cricket, obviously, live, and you must be forced to watch a lot on the television, and you will see a lot of television cricket broadcasts, which is obviously an area that I've been working in for a while now. When you're watching the cricket on telly, whether it be commentary or the way it's shot or the way it's covered in this discussion about improvement, what would you do if all of a sudden you were the executive producer of a cricket coverage? Is there things that you see that you don't want to see or things that you, from your experience, don't see that you'd like to see? That's a random question that I've thrown at yeah. you. Yeah. No, look, I think, I think we're pretty lucky in Australian sport um, and, you know, Kerry started it, you know, he changed the way sport was televised in, in Australia. And, um, you know, I, I think that's flowed through. Um, you know, Channel 9 had the iconic cricket commentary team for, for many years and now Channel 7 and Fox have the, have the cricket. <clears throat> I think we do pretty well, to be honest. I think, you know, there's so much technology available now. So some of the um, 
you know, the diving deep into, you know, what's what's going on, looking at uh, the, the whole game at, at depth. Um, I, you know, I, I really in, enjoy listening to it. Yes. I reckon Richie Benno had it just right. You know, Richie learned his broadcasting at the BBC and, you know, not to say too much. Uh, I'd probably try and cut, maybe one thing I would do is cut down the talking. Yes. Um, it was fascinating watching Bill Laurie and, and Richie Benno together. Bill would say very little, uh, sorry, Richie would say very little and Bill would say a lot. <laughs> but it, it was it was a good balance. Um, you know, a little bit of peace and quiet every every now and then, but don't fill in the spaces too much. Um, but Richie went to the cricket to find the good things, to see the good things that happened. And I reckon that's a pretty good attitude in life, to be honest. Um, we're all guilty of noticing bad behaviour, mistakes and picking on, particularly as a parent. Um, find, and that was one of the things that I learned as a coach, find something they're doing well and build on that rather than constantly going to them whether you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong, you know, you can change this, change that. Most people are what they are and I think you've got to try and bring the best out of what they are and who they are and um, I I think Richie's attitude of, you know, I go to the cricket every day to find the good stuff that's happening and uh, that's a pretty good way to be a sporting commentator it's a pretty good way to you know good way to be a parent and a good way to be an observer i think i hope i do that as a commentator i like to think i do but i will put that in my back pocket because put, put that in your back pocket yeah. and make sure you do it as a parent howie that's more yeah. important yeah absolutely i only have two more questions for you and on episode 100 and i think you're 124 you are now going where no one has ever gone before because we had a Goodness. gentleman um, get in touch this is about three weeks ago by the name of Khalid and he said we, ha- we have a thing called the hotline where people send in the stuff that I'm asking you about now, questions about what they'd like to hear on the show or guests. And this gentleman said, could you let us know who the guest is coming up so we could potentially ask a question of the guest? So for the very f- the man that suggested it has sent in a question. His name is Khalid. He's a massive cricket fan. I don't know him, but he has a question for you if you're happy to answer it, Greg. I'll do my best. Khalid here. I've been watching cricket for the past, say, three decades now, and I've noticed the game of cricket change over time. If there was one thing you could, that you miss from your era that is not in the current game at the moment, what would that be? And is there something that is in the current game that you guys didn't have in your era that you would like to have while you were playing? Thanks. Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, so my, my two hours have been crap, but Khalid comes in with one and you've given him it's a good question. No, no, well, it is because it, uh, you know, it, it opens up so many yes. areas. Um, you know, it was a very different era in which we played. You know, I, would, I would readily swap the pay packet with these guys, but I wouldn't swap the era. I think we played in a terrific era of yes. cricket. And it's interesting, I, I was lucky... Working, I went back and worked um, at South Australian Cricket for five years, coaching and so working out of Adelaide Oval. And <clears throat> actually, our office was in the Bradman stand. And often, Sir Donald Bradman would, you know, because people would send stuff from all around the world for Bradman to sign, and the sacker would collect it. And when it got to a certain level, they'd bring him up and say, you know, probably needs a visit. Mm-hmm. And so every so often, you'd see Sir Donald sort of park his car and his. Um, um, 
had a um, Toyota car. He'd drive his little Toyota into the ground. He'd walk over to the office. He'd disappear in there for an hour or so. And, and you might see him come out and get in his car and walk out. And this particular day, um, it would have been early 2000s, um, I walked around the back of the Bradman stand and there's the man himself. He's come out of the, the office and um, it sort of took me back to the, the day of the, uh, the group change. <laughs> so we sort of, you know, we bumped into other, each other, sort of we were forced on each other pretty much. And I said, good morning, Sir Donald. And he said, hello, Greg, how are you? And we stopped and we started having a bit of a chat and I realised that this is probably the last chance I'm ever going to get. Because normally Sir Donald would say, good morning, Greg, and he'd just get in his car and take off because he obviously had things to do. But for some reason this day he stopped and he engaged and we started having a chat and I thought, well, this could well be it. I'd better pull out the questions that I've always wanted to ask him. So firstly I asked him, you know, would you come and talk to the players? Uh, I was coaching the South Australian squad at the time. He said, um, ah, Greg, he said, I've retired from public life. I, I don't do that sort of stuff anymore. And I said, no, it's not a public thing. This will be a very private thing, really just a chance for the guys to say hello, say they've met you and maybe ask a few questions. I would love to ask you about your mental routine. He said, I didn't have one. <laughs> and I said, I'm a bit like you, I, was, I sort of, oh, I don't believe you. I didn't say that, but I said, I find, well, I did. I said, I find that hard to believe. And he said, no, no. He said, I just saw the ball and hit it. I <laughs> said, well, there you go. That's a routine. That's the simplest routine that anyone could ever have. And the simpler you can have it, the better, you know. And then I asked him about, you know, why did he resist so strongly the improvement in players' conditions? Not only pay, but a bit of respect for the, for the players. Wow. And he said, Greg, sport loses something when it becomes a business. And I knew when he said it what he meant, but I know even more now what he meant. You know, again, I think we were lucky. We played in the last, you know, I, I grew up dreaming of playing for Australia in an era where there was one format. And I got to play in that era for the first half of my career. Then I went through the revolution and then I came out in the modern era. And the game, you know, it was very different. A lot of things going on around the, the team. It was a lot more complex after World Series cricket than it was before World Series cricket. You know, you'll never be able to go back to that, that time, but it was a great way to play, to play cricket. More people are watching Test cricket now than ever before, but they're not going to the ground. And not every country has the same history that Australia and England has. You know, I think Ashes cricket will go on for as long as I'm around and, and obviously a lot longer, but... I'm not sure everyone else will play test cricket for much longer. And that, I think, will be a huge loss. Yes. Because cricket without test cricket won't be cricket at all. And so I think we have to be careful around that. So I think a lot more awareness inside the game has to be around what can we do to protect test cricket? How do we make it more viable for everyone? Because, you know, I worked in the subcontinent and they don't grow up with the same feeling around test cricket that we do. No. You know, thankfully, Coley loves Test cricket. If, you know, if India had a captain who didn't love Test cricket, they wouldn't play much. You know, they went for 18 months in the 90s without playing Test cricket when 50-over games started to become more popular. And now the 20-over game, it's a lot easier as an administrator or as a player to play 20-over cricket than it is to play Test cricket. So it's easier just to... Uh, 
Test cricket's too hard. And I think a lot of people have put test cricket in the too hard basket. So that's something that I think we need to, to think about. You know, the West Indies falling off the face of the earth, this is a disaster for cricket. And it's been coming for 30 years. And people, I know a few people have been talking about it, but no one could care less. One of your uh, contemporaries, Lord Ian Bothmuzzi, is now said that that's what he thinks the modern game needs is having a beer in the change rooms afterwards. I think he also told me that you were his first test wicket, but that's a discussion for a completely... Ranked long hop, bottom edge, on, dragged onto the stumps. But uh, it, was probably the, it was probably the best ball he bowled in test cricket. But anyway, <laughs> uh, but look, they don't have to have a beer. But I think, you know, yeah. oh, I know when I was coaching India, you know, you'd sit in the dressing room and, you know, they'd be talking about the opposition players and, you know, this bloke's a bit of a rat bag and this bloke's that. And we were in South Africa on, on tour there and um, Andre Nell was... Oh, yeah. Quick. South African fast bowler. And Andre was white line fever man. You know, he'd get on the field and he would just go berserk. We, we had one in our dressing room. Sri Sant was the same. Sri was a lovely bloke off the field. Once he crossed the white line, he, you know, he'd just go a bit mental. So I said to our boys, look, come on, let's go into the South African dressing room and just have a glass of water with them, anything. Just get to know each other and you might have a different, but the, they, they just couldn't get their head around it. So the coaching, I took the coaching staff in and we went in and we met with the South African coaches and we met the South African players and you got a totally different look yes. at, at the opposition. And Andre Nell, by the time we got into the dressing room, Andre was dressed up in his blazer and attire, hello, sir, can I get you a drink? You know, he was the most gentle, the nicest bloke that you'd ever meet. So you got a totally different look at him on the field. And the other thing was that in your dressing room, all you would see and all the players would see is the bad decisions that go against you. And I had to pull our guys aside one day and say, listen, guys, you know, you, if you only look for bad decisions, that's all you'll see. Mm. Have a look. You'll probably notice that they get a few bad ones too, you know. And it, over time it balances out. But if you focus on the bad ones, that's all you're going to see. So let's just get away from that and let's stop that conversation because it doesn't help us. Because then you start feeling you're hard done by and, you know, I'm unlucky. And when you're in that state of mind, you, you, it's not a healthy state of mind to be in. So let's start looking for the positives and just play our game and forget about the, the rest. And, uh, you know, I think it certainly helped change the environment in, in our dressing room. But it, um, it, it was certainly a blessing for us, I reckon, to get to know the opposition players. And, you know, still to this day, I, I'm not closely in touch with a lot of blokes that I played with, let alone ones I played against. But when I was in England in 2019 for the World Cup, I met players from England, the West Indies, India and so on that I'd played against. And oh. it was great great to be able to sit down with them and have a meal, have a chat, whatever it was, and, you know, just have a bit of a laugh over, over things that happened all those, all those years ago um, because, you know, we actually got to know them as, as players. So uh, I think that's something that we were blessed with that I'd love to see, uh, you know, the, the current players have the same opportunity. Thank you to Khalid for his question. Thank you Thank to you, you for your answer. My final question for you is the most important one. We are blessed, Greg, to have a lot of kids listen to this show with their parents and they all want to succeed in life, whether it be sport or the arts or whatever it would be. If you could distill everything you've learned for a piece of advice for the youngsters growing up that want to 
have some success in their life, what would you say? Because you have got a tremendous amount of experience to withdraw with to draw on for this answer. Yeah, look, the best best thing I ever learned was that I am responsible for how I feel. I'm responsible for how I react to what happens to me. You know, through life there's going to be a lot of times when things will be seemingly against you. It's not what happens to you, but it's how you respond to it that, that's the, the most important thing. And, you know, we've all got a superpower. You know, I don't think many people realise it. I, I was lucky enough to realise it early in, in my cricket career. But our imagination is our superpower. Mm. There's nothing that we can't be if, if we really want to put our mind to it, and I mean put our mind to it. So it's, I learned early, in my, early enough in my career to make a difference that I could spend thousands of hours trying to get better physically and I might get worse. But if I could spend an hour a day just focusing on getting better mentally, so taking control of my internal environment, being an observer to my thoughts was the most important thing that I ever learned. To understand that, you know, I, I learned that I couldn't guarantee success by bringing a good attitude, but I could guarantee failure by bringing a bad attitude. Yeah, okay. And so it's the attitude that you bring to whatever it is that you're doing that's going to decide how that turns out for you. So that's our little superpower, our imagination. You know, I used to lie in bed, you asked the question earlier, I used to lie in bed the night before a game and I would see myself batting the way I wanted to bat against the bowlers that I would be bowling against. And I suddenly realised that this, that was the training that I had to get good at because that was the only place I could have a perfect training session. You know, physically, you know, I was going to make mistakes no matter how hard I tried, but in in a in imagined training session, I could be the perfect batsman that I wanted to be. And that turned out to be a very powerful tool and that was my sort of superpower and but it's available to everyone. It's the attitude that you bring to each day that decides the quality of that day. Greg, it is a wonderful explanation. I'm going to walk away from this a few things. Next time I see Ian at a cricket ground this summer, I'm going to think twice about going up and giving him a hug. I don't think I'm going to do it, but it's going to be my mind for one. <laughs> um, two, I think from my questions that have related so much to my personal experience, you'll understand why it's been a great thrill for me to have a chat with you. It, um, I hope it's been enjoyable for you as it has been for me because obviously those things are related. I grew up with you in my lounge room, so it's been a real treat for me to have a chat with you. I've enjoyed it, Howie. Thank you and, and well done with the, the work that, uh, that you're doing with this because uh, getting all of these people that have been successful in, in walks of life uh, together to get their thoughts down for perpetuity. I hope you don't ever lose the information you've got there because it, it's powerful stuff. No, it is, and that's why I'm going to send you – I'm going to think about it and I'm going to send you a episode to listen to. Immediately in my head from what we've talked about, I think I might send you Adam Scott because the last 45 minutes he talks through the last six holes of his Masters win and wow. I think you'd enjoy it. Um, but I'm going to get you on board. I'm going to get, You can't just be a guest. I want you to be a listener as well. Good on you, Harry. Good on you, you Greg. Me. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining me on the Howie Games. I've enjoyed it, mate. Thank you. What an absolute legend Greg Chappell is. How about some of those stories he told and the fact that he is looking to improve himself every day? How good is that? 
Thanks to Greg for indulging me with all those memories of mine. Thanks to longtime listener David Evans for teeing the episode up. Thank you, Evo. And for Das for being Das. And a shout out to the main man at Listener Grant Tothill who puts up with me and is always excited by any new ideas I throw at him, no matter how random they may are. If you could do me a favour again and please subscribe to the show, just hit subscribe. That would be epic. Tell your friends about it. That would be even better. Until next week with Daniel Kowalski, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Listener.